You're listening to Read Swell, a podcast for people who love to read and talk about books. I'm Meredith Bird, and thank you for joining us as we look at chapters 7 and 8 of The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. I'd love to know your thoughts as we're reading the book, and you can contact me at readwriteswell at gmail.com or on Twitter at read underscore swell, where if you use the hashtag Handmaid's Tale RS or Handmaid's Tellers, I'll know you're talking about our current book. Last week, we were discussing chapters five and six, which has our protagonist, Ofrid, going on her daily walks with the other handmaid of Glen and going to the store, seeing her former colleague from the Red Center, who is now very pregnant, and also seeing the hanging bodies along the wall of what used to be the university that Ofrid attended. Chapter 7 is the beginning of part 3, and it's entitled Night. Ofred says, The night is mine, my own time, to do with as I will, as long as I am quiet, as long as I don't move, as long as I lie still. The difference between lie and lay. Lay is always passive. Even men used to say, I'd like to get laid. Though sometimes they said, I'd like to lay her. All this is pure speculation. I don't really know what men used to say. I had only their words for it. That's a little bit interesting because on the one hand, she still doesn't know what men say because she's not in their world. And secondly, even back then, there's a separation between the men and women, only now it's much more obvious and much clearer. But let's get back to the rest of that quote about night and laying versus lying. As long as she doesn't make herself known in any way, right? As long as she's still invisible, then she can do with the night as she will. That does say something, right, about her about her role in the society. As long as she's invisible, she can move about, whether it's in her memories or quite literally. We're going to see that continue. As long as she plays her role and remains invisible and remains still and doesn't move, then Ofrid has a freedom of sorts. Let's move on. She neatly sidesteps the world that she is existing in out of her own time but the night is my time out. Where should I go? She asks and replies, somewhere good. And the first memory we have is of Ofred's college days with Moira laying on her dorm room bed smoking a cigarette. We have Moira described as uh, wearing purple overalls with one dangly earring, the gold fingernail she wore to be eccentric, a cigarette between her stubby yellow-ended fingers. Let's go for a, a beer. I love that description of Moira, the gold fingernail she wore to be eccentric. I'm sure many of us have either had that friend or been that person who you know, did a certain thing in order to acknowledge how eccentric one was. And it's just such a early teens, 20s thing, isn't it? That college age, needing to display that you are eccentric in order to get attention. Ofred says that she can't go have a beer because she has a paper to write and it's due the next day. What was it? Psychology? English? Economics? We studied things like that then. On the floor of the room were books open face down this way and that extravagantly. Remember, this is Ofred looking back on the life that she used to live and acknowledging how much has changed for her. She felt so casual about books that she could just lay them around extravagantly 
because they weren't something precious and needing to be conserved like they would be now. And in addition to that, she has the luxury of being able to study things like English economics or psychology. Again, it's just such a, a sad reminder of what has been lost for her in the society she lives in now. Uh, Moira says, what's your paper on? I just did one on date rape. Date rape, I said. You're so trendy. Sounds like some kind of dessert. Date rape, and many kinds of rape, has been in the news lately, especially because our society is dealing with what it means to be a rape culture. And this feels like an uncomfortable anachronism that that Ofrid could be so casual about something that we in our society feel very strongly about. However, it's also interesting that she could talk about this as if it isn't super relevant to her life, as if it's something that's so far removed that she can make jokes about the pronunciation of it. They're protected from things like this, so much so that she can joke that it sounds like a dessert. Moira laughs back, and then the memory moves away. Now, Ofrid is in a park somewhere with her mother. She doesn't know quite how old she was, but she was a young girl who was going to feed the ducks with breadcrumbs, and it was cold. Ofrid's mother says that they're going to go feed the ducks, but it turns out that she was lying because she wanted to go to the park to see her friends. And Ofrid, the young girl, says, Saturdays were supposed to be my day. I turned away from her, sulking towards the ducks, but the fire drew me back. There are women here at the park burning books. And Ofer says, there were some men too among the women, and the books were magazines. They must have poured gasoline because the flames shot high, and then they began dumping the magazines from boxes, not too many at a time. Some of them were chanting, onlookers gathered. Their faces were happy, ecstatic almost. Fire can do that. Even my mother's face, usually pale, finish, looked ruddy and cheerful, like a Christmas card. There's another woman here who lets her throw one of these magazines onto the fire, and she says, good riddance to bad rubbage. The woman hands Ofred one of these magazines. It had a pretty woman on it, with no clothes on, hanging from the ceiling by a chain wound about her hands. I looked at it with interest. It didn't frighten me. I thought she was swinging like Tarzan from a vine on the TV. Don't let her see it, said my mother. Here, she said to me, toss it in quick. So here we have a group of women and some men who are burning magazines, which from the description, it seems as though they are pornographic magazines. Later on, we'll get to know Ofred's mother a little bit better, and we'll see that she is a strong feminist who is one of the only voices of rebellion and feminism in the story. However, in this moment, she and these other women are burning magazines, which is an example of you know, silencing freedom of speech. Regardless of how you feel about pornography and women's roles in pornography, it is still protected by free speech. And so these women here are silencing it, just like we might imagine the people who run Gilead would have done silencing magazines that portray sex in any way outside of the way that it, they have defined it. So it's interesting. I think that Atwood is making a comment about militant versions of both party affiliations, both the left wing and also the right wing. She doesn't go into it very much. It's a very quick moment and then we move on. But we do see 
that Ofrid's mother is burning things she doesn't agree with in much the same way that the people of Gilead are silencing things they don't agree with. Then she loses track of her memories for a moment, saying, I know I lost time. There must have been needles, pills, something like that. I couldn't have lost that much time without help. You have had a shock, they said. I would come up through a roaring and confusion like surface boiling. I remember feeling quite calm. I can remember screaming. Felt like a screaming, though it may only have been a whisper. Where is she? What have you done with her? There was no night or day, only a flickering. She's in good hands, I said, with people who are fit. You are unfit, but you want the best for her, don't you? They showed me a picture of her, standing outside on a lawn, her face a closed oval. Her light hair was pulled back tight behind her head. Holding her hand was a woman I didn't know. You've killed her, I said. She looked like an angel, solemn, compact, made of air. She was wearing a dress I'd never seen, white and down to the ground. Now we've moved into a memory that's not so good, that is of Ofred's daughter, who has been taken away from her because Ofred has been deemed unfit. We don't know the exact reasons, but it seems as though she was deemed unfit after she and Luke tried to escape with their daughter across the border. And now Ofred is a handmaid. Ofred says, I would like to believe this is a story I'm telling. I need to believe it. I must believe it. Those who can believe that such stories are only stories have a better chance. If it's a story I'm telling, then I have control over the ending. Then there will be an ending to the story, and real life will come after it. I can pick up where I left off. It isn't a story I'm telling. It's also a story I'm telling in my head as I go along. Tell rather than write, because I have nothing to write with, and writing is in any case forbidden. But if it's a story, even in my head, I must be telling it to someone. You don't tell a story only to yourself. There's always a someone else, even when there is no one. A story is like a letter. Dear you, I'll say. Just you, without a name. Attaching a name attaches you to the world of fact, which is riskier, more hazardous. Who knows what the chances are out there of survival? Yours. I will say you, you, like an old love song. You can mean more than one. You can mean thousands. I'm not in any immediate danger, I'll say to you. I'll pretend you can hear, but it's no good because I know you can't. There's a lot going on here in this passage, which is why I read so much of it. First of all, she wants to believe this is a story that she's telling because in that way she will have control over the ending. Currently, she has no control in her life whatsoever, except whether or not to sleep at night. And if she is telling a story, then she can control the ending and then real life will come after it. As if you could have a tragic ending and then go on, continue your actual life away from all the events that have affected the story. However, she acknowledges it isn't a story that I'm telling. She knows that this is real life and the events in it can't be controlled by anyone. I believe it was Ernest Hemingway who said that happy endings just depend on where you stop telling the story. And that's paraphrasing. That's not the exact quote. But his point is that you could only have a happy ending if you stop telling the story at some point, because otherwise all stories are going to end with people dying. And we see 
Ofred acknowledging that reality here. There is no ending with real life after it. There is only an ending. And then we move on. It isn't a story I'm telling. It's real life. But on the other hand, she says, it's also a story I'm telling in my head as I go along. Just like in our own worlds, we construct the narrative of the world that we see, right? There are certain things that we interpret in our own day-to-day life that affect the narrative and the story that we tell ourselves. And so we see Ofred doing that here too. First of all, she knows that it is real life. And secondly, she knows that the things that she notices and describes are part of the story that she is telling and creating for herself. And that gives her a sense of power. And it also gives her a way to interpret and view the events. She can do so negatively, or she can do so with a positive light, hoping that the story she's telling can be influenced by her responses. And we also have the detail that she has to tell it because she can't write it, and writing is forbidden anyway. And then also, if I am telling this story, then there has to be an audience. Those are the rules of storytelling. You have to have someone telling the story. You have to have someone listening to the story or reading the story in this case. It has to be a combination of the two factors in order for us to have a story. And so if she is telling a story, therefore there must be an audience. And that means that she's not alone. Although then she kind of plays out this idea of a you. Uh, I don't want to attach anything to it. I don't want to create an audience in my mind because that can be dangerous. Who knows who that you is and who knows if that you will survive? I in- it's interesting that she says that. Who knows what the chances are out there of survival, yours? In that little detail that she's clarifying that it's your survival, she's concerned about, she's also clarifying that she is going to survive. She's not worried about herself. She's worried about the audience. And then she continues, I will say you, you, like an old love song. You can mean thousands. Thousands of people might be listening to her story, or it might just be a one-person audience that's very intimate and personal. Kind of like how I imagine this podcast to be, right? (laughs) Let's hope that one day it gets to thousands. I'd love to have thousands of people talking about literature in a way that is critical and deep. But if it's only one person, I'm happy to have that too because it means that, or one person who finds value in what I'm saying. So I can relate to her in this moment. Okay, this is the end of chapter seven. It brings us to chapter eight, which is the waiting room. We're back at the wall where Ofred saw the bodies with her partner, Ofglin. She says it's almost like June now. There are three new bodies. One is a priest still wearing the black cassock. That's been put on him for the trial. They gave up wearing those years ago when the sect wars first began. Cassocks made them too conspicuous. Catholic priest's body that is hanging here on the wall. Remember earlier I said that it's fascinating to see her insert these uh, details about the world because it tells us what kind of religious group the leaders of Gilead are. We know earlier that Gilead has been fighting Baptists, and we also have the mention of the Libertheos, who could be uh, free religion people or freedom from religion people. And here we have this information that Catholics are also being killed. This also makes me think about the sect wars that have been going on for centuries between Protestants and Catholics. 
And so it's doubly tragic in this moment because Catholics have been killed by Protestants and vice versa. The other two bodies have purple placards around their necks with, with the label gender treachery. Ofred says their bodies still wear the guardian uniforms. So here, here we have a little bit about what happens to gay men in this society. They're accused of gender treachery. I know that this book was written in 1985 and came out around that time, and transgender issues were almost invisible at that point. But I think it's also interesting that this is how she labels it, as gender treachery, because it almost seems to speak to that same issue that we're seeing being fought about in state congresses all over the country today, in courthouses and schools and bathrooms all over our country at this moment. Ofred says they must have been caught together, these two men accused of gender treachery. But where? A barracks? A shower? It also reminds me of the young men that she saw at the entryway earlier, where she takes that moment in order to perhaps entice them and seduce them by the swaying of her hips and by looking at them as she goes through the entryway. Those two young men, she says, aren't able to act out their sexual desires because of the rules and roles they are living under. And here we have two young men who apparently did act out their sexual desires, and these are the consequences. All right, let's continue on. Ofred and Ofglen are looking at the wall, just like they did in chapters before, and Ofred says, we should go back. I'm always the one to say this. Sometimes I feel that if I didn't say it, she would stay here forever. But is she mourning or gloating? I still can't tell. Without a word, she swivels, as if she's voice-activated, as if she's on little oiled wills, as if she's on top of a music box. I resent this grace of hers. I resent her meek head, bowed as if into a heavy wind. They continue on, and Ufquin says, It's a beautiful May day. I feel, rather than see her head turn towards me, waiting for a reply. Yes, I say. Praise be, I add as an afterthought. And then this detail is for us, the audience. May Day used to be a distress signal a long time ago in one of those wars we studied in high school. I kept getting them mixed up, but you could tell them apart by the airplanes if you paid attention. It was Luke who told me about May Day, though. May Day, May Day, for pilots whose planes had been hit. And ships, was it ships too at sea? Maybe it was SOS for ships. I wish I could look it up. That moment right there, it's just she's just a normal woman. She can't keep track of the wars in history class, and she can't remember these little details that reminds us that Ofrid is just a normal woman who is existing in this society like many other normal women would. She doesn't have any special superpowers. And going back a little bit, Luke says, do you know how that came about, that word? No, it's a strange word, though, isn't it? She asks. Newspapers and coffee on Sunday mornings before she was born. There were still newspapers then. We used to read them in bed. It's French, he said. Midday. Help me. Which, you can hear, sounds very similar to Mayday. Mayday. That last word, though, help me, is all by itself in the text. Almost as if the translation for the French phrase is her own 
plea for help as well. We'll come back to the idea of Mayday shortly. For the moment, we are interrupted by a funeral coming towards Ofrid and Ufglen. This funeral is made up of three different O'Connor wives, and we can tell this because of the striped dress they are wearing. Ofrid takes this minute to tell us, the audience, that Aunt Lydia says, someday, when time's improved, no one will have to be an O'Connor wife. This brings us back to that idea that we discussed last week, where women in Gilead are separated into their functions. You've got handmaids for bearing children, commander's wives for, I suppose, being the hostess and socialite and appearance of a wife. You've got Marthas, who are housekeepers, and then you have the O'Connor wives, who have to do all of these things, and therefore are looked down upon a little bit in status. Of course, because we are human, the O'Connor wives look down on the handmaids. And we see that instance here where, remember how the handmaids are supposed to be admired and cherished and honored for what they are doing for Gilead? But at the same time, they are also representations of sex. We see this moment here where they are representations of sex in a society that wants to limit the acceptance of sex. So we have the three Akana wives coming towards the two handmaids, and we know that this is a funeral for a miscarriage. Uh, the first woman coming forward is the mother, and she carries a small black jar. From the size of the jar, you can tell how old it was when it foundered two or three months, too young to tell whether or not it was an unbaby. This term, the un prefix, is something that was also applied to the women who go to the islands and are a warning tale for the women at the Red Center, like Ofrid. They are called unwomen, and we don't get a good reason for why they are unwomen, and neither do we get a very good reason for why this is an unbaby. It's still too young to even have been a viable baby. However, we're told that two or three months is too young to tell whether or not it would have been an unbaby if it had survived. And so it makes me wonder what is going on in the society that you have unwomen and unbabies. Ofrid and Ofglen pause out of respect while they go by. Ofrid says, I wonder if Ofglen feels what I do, pain like a stab in the belly. We put our hands over our hearts to show these stranger women that we feel with them in their loss. Beneath her veil, the first one scowls at us. One of the others turns aside, spits on the sidewalk. The Econo wives do not like us. This is a sad moment, for a lot of reasons. First of all, the funeral itself is sad. Secondly, the two handmaids are showing solidarity with the women, that they understand their pain. Because, in the end, all of them are women, who have either experienced the loss of a child or experienced the desire to have a child. She probably sympathizes very much with these women, and yet we also see the O'Connor wives responding negatively to their perception of the handmaids. So we have that split that sometimes occurs in women who, in all reality, should be caring for each other and should be 
uh, united in solidarity when they are being oppressed so heavily by this society. And yet, it's all too human that we find something within each other to separate ourselves, even in circumstances like this. And I don't think we have enough to know about the O'Connor wives to know whether or not they are looking down on the handmaids because just of the sex that is associated with the handmaids, or if they're looking down on the handmaids because of class status and the handmaids are supposed to be higher status and they are given to the commander's wives who are higher status and the O'Connor wives have to make do being a woman with multiple functions in a society that wants to separate those out. Uh, Ofred and Ufglin continue on their way after this occurs, pass back through the barrier that we saw in earlier chapters with the two young guardians that perhaps are admiring or desiring after the handmaids as they walk past. And they continue back along the empty-looking houses and the weedless lawns, that perfect facade of Gilead that is presented for us. Here they turn and separate and respond with the traditional greeting, Under his eye, says Ufglin. And Ofred replies, Under his eye. Ufglin hesitates, as if to say something, but then she turns away and walks down the street. In the driveway, Nick is polishing the whirlwind again, and the flowers are opening up. The tulips are redder than ever before. No longer wine cups, but chalices, thrusting themselves up, to what end? They are, after all, empty. When they are old, they are turned themselves inside out, then explode slowly, the petals thrown away like shards. Nick begins to whistle and looks up and says, Nice walk. Ofred nods but does not answer with her voice. She says, He isn't supposed to speak to me. Of course, some of them will try, said Aunt Lydia. All flesh is weak. They can't help it, she said. God made them that way, but he did not make you that way. He made you different. It's up to you to set the boundaries. Later, you will be thanked. When I was a young teenager reading this book for the first time, this is probably one of those moments that really resonated the most with me. Because I was a young woman in a Christian community and a society that told me that Young men can't help it. They just get excited. They can't help themselves. And it is up to us, the girls and women, to set the boundaries because otherwise you, know, you might take it too far and end up having sex. And it's up to the young women to remain virtuous because the young men can't. Now, Obviously, this is a ridiculous assumption to make about young men, and it's a ridiculous requirement to put on young women. And I probably resonated with this moment and resonated with my dislike of Aunt Lydia. And this is probably one of those moments for me that forced me to start questioning my own existence, my own reality, as much as I was questioning Ofred's reality. I think it's an important lesson for us to learn that we can apply to our own lives to tell young men that they can't help it takes away their responsibility for their actions. And yet we tell our children that actions have consequences and you have to be responsible for your actions. And then we lay the burden of that on women. And when they are not able to or don't want to set those boundaries, then we accuse them of being uh, somehow lacking, right? 
a young woman who is raped is accused of wearing clothing that was provocative to a man who just couldn't help it. Or a young woman who also feels sexual desire is told that these sexual desires must be stopped by her. And yet we also live in a society that gives men a lot of power in a relationship. So for me, these words that Aunt Lydia is saying were words that I have probably heard verbatim from other people. And it made me stop and think about what else is Margaret Atwood saying? If she's saying this in this context, but I've heard them as well in my own lives, what does that say about the young men and young women and the expectations put on each of them? Okay, back to the story. In the garden, the commander's wife is sitting in the chair she's had brought out. Ofred says, Serena Joy, what a stupid name. It's like something you'd put on your hair in the other time, in the time before, to straighten it. Serena Joy, it would say on the bottle, with a woman's head and cut paper silhouette on a pink oval background with scalloped gold edges. With everything to choose from in the way of names, why did she pick that one? Serena Joy was never her real name, not even then. Her real name was Pam. I read that in a profile on her in a news magazine, long after I'd first watched her singing while my mother slept in on Sunday mornings. By that time, she was worthy of a profile. Times or Newsweek it was. It must have been. She wasn't singing anymore by then. She was making speeches. She was good at it. Her speeches were about the sanctity of the home, about how women should stay home. Serena Joy didn't do this herself. She made speeches instead. But she presented this failure of hers as a sacrifice she was making for the good of all. Ofred goes on to say that she and her husband Luke would watch her sometimes on the, on the late night news and her sprayed hair and her hysteria and the tears she could still produce at will and the mascara blackening her cheeks. By this time, she was wearing more makeup and Ofred says, we thought she was funny or Luke thought she was funny. I only pretended to think so. Really, she was a little frightening. She was in earnest. She's not a joke. She's not saying that uh, women should be in the home as a way just to get attention. She's saying this because she truly believes it. And someone with that much earnesty and that, that much passion can sometimes be a little frightening, just like Serena Joy. Back in current times, Ofred says she doesn't make speeches anymore. She has become speechless. She stays in her home, but it doesn't seem to agree with her. How furious she must be, now that she's been taken at her word. Ofred continues watching Serena Joy, and she describes her face as having begun to sink from that flawless cut paper profile that she had as a young woman. And this makes Ofred think of the towns built on underground rivers, where houses and whole streets disappear overnight. Then she goes on, something like this must have happened to her once she saw the true shape of things to come. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, now that she's been taken at her word and now that she sees the reality of the world that she was so earnestly proposing, she's a furious, silent figure who's stuck in her home with nothing to do but knit and garden. And isn't it ironic that this woman who was so passionate about women's places, 
has now been put in what she said were women's places. And yet, now that she's seen what that really looks like, she's not so inclined to agree with it. However, she can't go back now. She's seen the way that things have become, and she saw the true shape of them, and it's too late for her to recant. I don't like Serena Joy. There's nothing within the story that makes her a sympathetic character. The way she treats Ofrid and the way that she behaves throughout is, on the whole, unpleasant. And yet, I have a sort of ironic regard for her. How ironic it must be to be taken seriously and then to learn that you're still disregarded and disrespected in ways that you thought working towards one goal would alleviate. And now we go back to Aunt Lydia giving advice as she does. It's not the husbands you have to watch out for, said Aunt Lydia. It's the wives. You should always try to imagine what they must be feeling. Of course they will resent you. It is only natural. Try to feel for them. Aunt Lydia thought she was very good at feeling for other people. Try to pity them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. That quote right there is from Jesus Christ on the cross, asking God to forgive the people who are persecuting and crucifying him, for they know not what they do. And Aunt Lydia here is saying that the wives, the commander's wives, don't know what they're doing either when they persecute and mistreat mistreat the handmaids. Which, I have to say, removes a lot of responsibility from these wives. And they are supposed to be paragons of virtue, of Christian behavior. And yet, we're also told that the handmaids should forgive those wives for their unchristian-like hatred, because they don't know what they're doing. Hmm. Fascinating. So first we take away responsibility for young men for their sexual desire, and then we take away responsibility for this hateful behavior of these wives because of the situation they are put in. I'd like to mention here that regardless of the situation we are in, we still have control over our reactions and responses to it. Serena Joy doesn't seem to care very much about her reaction to the situation that she's been put in, even though it's a situation that she herself advocated for. I'd also like to mention that, yes, these wives and these handmaids are oppressed by the society they are in. However, in the grand scheme of things, the commander's wives do have more status. They do have a little bit more freedom in the situation And for Aunt Lydia to say that the handmaids, who were here to perform a sexual function and perform a reproductive function, is really asking a lot of these handmaids to forgive the women who are higher in status of them. Think about that for a second in a different context. Imagine that the handmaids were African-American slaves. And their leader was saying that, you know, we should just forgive those slave masters and slave owners for the behavior because they don't know what they do. And we should always try to imagine what they must be feeling. I'm not saying that the wives are exactly in the same category as 
slave masters and owners. However, they are the ones in power more so than the handmaids. And to ask the handmaids to always try to imagine what these women who have more power are feeling is, it's ironic, isn't it? Ironic and rich. Okay, we'll continue on. Aunt Lydia continues talking about why the wives should be should be forgiven. She says that you must realize they are defeated women. They have been unable. And here her voice breaks off. But we can assume that she would continue saying they've been unable to reproduce. Therefore, they have been defeated, right? Because these women are separated into functions in society. If they can't do the functions for which they are assigned, then they must be unwomen. And this is just a reminder that this society views these women as having one basic primary purpose, which is to reproduce. And to be unable to do that means that one is defeated. There is no other realm for these women to excel in. If they can't reproduce, if they can't do that one thing that their bodies are supposed to be able to do, then they are the ones who are defeated. Ofred continues on into the kitchen and is hit with the smell of yeast, which is a nostalgic smell to her. It reminds me of other kitchens, kitchens that were mine. It smells of mothers, although my own mother did not make bread. It smells of me in former times when I was a mother. This is a treacherous smell, and I know I must shut it out. Remember how last week I was talking about how she separates out her thoughts in order to survive? This is another example of that. And smells, as we know, trigger some of the strongest memories. And therefore, this smell is turning against her, reminding her of things that she has lost and things she longs for. And so she has to shut it out in order to survive. Rita and Ofred discuss the shopping. Rita men Ofred mentions that they've got oranges at Milk and Honey, and there's still a few left. They discuss the chicken, just as many women throughout the world do. Discuss the shopping, discuss uh, the quality of the food available, and how to get the most out of it. It's just this very simple, quick moment between the two of them that reminds us that women within this reality haven't changed all that much. Cora comes into the kitchen and they continue talking about the chicken. Rita says that Ofrid should speak up, reminding her that it's not like she's common, meaning the commander's rank. But in the other sense, her sense, Rita's sense, she thinks I am common. She's over 60, her mind's made up. So again, that disdain for the handmaids and for their role relegating them to being simply whores or prostitutes. We have another quick little glimpse of how this world hasn't changed as much as we would like to think, because Ofred says that the dish towels are the same as they always were. Sometimes these flashes of normalcy come at me from the side, like ambushes. Again, they are things that must be shut down in order for her to survive. The ordinary as usual, a reminder, like a kick. I see the dish towel out of context and I catch my breath. For some, in some ways, things haven't changed that much. Rita says to Cora, who's doing the bath? We get this detail that Rita's saying it to Cora, not to Ofrid, which tells us that the bath is something that the handmaid is involved in, but it's a chore for one of the Marthas. And 
They continue talking about it as if Ofred's not here. To them, I'm a household chore, she says, one among many. She's dismissed. She goes back through the kitchen, down the hall, back to her room, passing the way that she came in through the house, just as we saw earlier. And as she reaches her room, she sees someone standing in the hall near the door to the room where she stays. The hall is dusky. This is a man, his back to me. He's looking into the room, dark against its light. I can see now it's the commander. He isn't supposed to be here. He hears me coming, turns, hesitates, walks forward towards me. He is violating custom. What do I do now? I stop. He pauses. I can't see his face. He's looking at me. What does he want? But then he moves forward again, steps to the side to avoid touching me, inclines his head, is gone. Ofred says about, of this encounter that something has been shown to her, but she's not sure what it is. Like the flag of an unknown country seen for an instant above a curve of hill. It could mean attack. It could mean parley. It could mean the edge of something, a territory. What in the hell does he think he's doing? Nobody else has seen him, I hope. Was he invading? Was he in my room? I called it mine. So here we have a couple things going on that's going to prepare us for the rest of the story leading forward. First of all, Ofred earlier has acknowledged that she will not call the room hers. She refuses to do that because by calling it hers, she it's as if she is a part of this world. And it's as if she has accepted her fate when in reality she refuses to do that. She has no other control in her situation, except for what she calls this room that she lives in. She refuses to call it hers, just calling it the room. And yet, when it seems as though she's going to be invaded, when she's about to lose whatever privacy this room affords her, it is now hers, it is now her space that she has control over, and she calls it hers, acknowledging that. Now she's invested in some way in this space and in this reality. And we're going to see part of that investment pay off in the next chapters. Moving back a little bit forward, a little bit further, we see the commander for the first time. And we see him in a context that tells us that there's something about this commander that isn't expected. She's not sure what it is. She doesn't know how to navigate this interaction with him because it is so foreign to what has been commanded. And so she's not sure how she's supposed to react, or what it means exactly. Later on, we'll see a little bit more about this commander and a little bit more about what this first introduction of him might have implied. Again, we'll also get more about, about the bath and about how it's bath time today. So we'll learn about that in those later chapters, and Atwood is setting us up to anticipate and wonder, why is this bath a chore that the two Marthas have to divvy up? Why is it something that is involving the handmaid, Ofrid, but is treated as though it's just another household chore? And why does a Martha have to be here for that? So we'll learn more about the bath in the next chapters, and we'll learn more about the commander in the next chapters, as well as that room. So this last half of the book is just really leading us into the rest of the story, helping it open up a little bit more. Up until this point, we've mostly had world building with some history. 
Now we're going to get into the action of the story itself. It's still going to move slowly. There's no car chases in this book. But now we are getting into the inciting incidents and the rising action of the tale. And I'm going to leave it here. That is the end of the chapter. Next week, we will look at chapters 9 and 10. And if you have any thoughts about these chapters we've discussed today, 7 and 8, please feel free to email me at readwriteswell at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at read underscore swell. Or if you use the hashtag Handmaid's Tale RS or Handmaid's Tellers, you can let me know your thoughts about this current book. Thanks for joining me and I hope to hear from you soon. Bye!